one of my favorite things about being a Christian, about being a pastor, about being a part of this church or any church in my life has been to hear testimonies of people's lives being transformed. I would imagine that some of you are probably in a similar place when you hear that. Yeah, I think that testimonies of God's power to save, the transformation of people's lives help cause you to be encouraged about the truthfulness of the gospel, that this is not just some abstract idea, but it really does touch down tangibly in our, our lives. I think also another way that it encourages us is it reminds us of our own stories when we hear other people's stories, and maybe the details are different, but we so relate, like, yes, I, I can relate to those truths because I, too, was that way, and then God came into my life, and then now I've seen similar changes of transformation, and so I think testimonies of God's grace are God's stories, if you want to put it very simply. Our story of how God touched our lives is one of the, the most encouraging things we could do. And so we have the privilege today to hear multiple stories of God's transformation. Earlier in the service, you heard Isaiah chapter 6 and the story of transformation when Isaiah sees the Lord in a vision of God seated on the throne and he is undone. He is not the same man anymore. He, he is quickly repentant and says, woe is me. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible is Isaiah chapter 6 that was read earlier. And then we heard later in the service, Paul's conversion story. A man who was formerly called Saul. And then he had this radical transformation. And we're going to consider that story further today as we study Galatians chapter 1. As we make our way through Galatians. And then as we finish our service after this message, we're going to hear two more stories, stories of the way God has come in. And so I want all of you this morning to be encouraged, hopefully, by these stories, but I also want you to be thinking about your own. I want you to be thinking about which ways Paul's story or Sai or Sheena's story, as you hear theirs later, how they remind you of your own. And some of you, if you're here today, you may not really know, well, what is my story? Do I even have one, a story of how God came in, or a vision of God, or seeing God in his grace, or his majesty, and how that just radically transformed your life? Do you even have a story? And so that's what I want us to consider this morning. I want us to, through looking at Paul's story of transformation, I want us to consider our own stories. So here's what we're going to do. I want us to turn our Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We started this series last week. We're going to go through Galatians through the next 12, 13 weeks or so. And we're going to look at each little paragraph or section one at a time. And so last week we were in verses 1 through 9. And we're going to pick it up where we left off in verses 10 through 24, the rest of chapter 1. And as we do so, I want to outline these verses in the following way. I want us to first get the big idea because we're working our way through Galatians and I want us to make sure we're understanding what this book is here for and what this argument and this story is here for. So first, I want us to ask, why is Paul going to tell us his story in Galatians chapter 1? Why is he going to recount the story we heard read earlier as Will read us from Acts chapter 9. We're going to get Paul's version of that story here in Galatians 1. So why? That's the first thing. And then secondly, I want us to ask, well, what is his story? And then we're going to look and see how he recounts it himself. 
And that's going to be the main meat of this message. So the way I'm thinking about it, and let's hope the execution goes well, is that we're going to have an, a brief introduction. Now here's why, and then we're going to have a longer what, and then we're going to have a conclusion, a shorter. Now, how does this relate to us? And how does our stories compare? So if you're following, that's why, what, and how. Why is Paul telling us this story? What is his story? And how does our story compare? Let's begin with why, and we're going to begin with verse 10. Verse 10 says, For I am now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Why is Paul telling his story here in verse 10, and then we'll, we'll see in the coming verses, is to set the story straight. He is defensive, as we saw last week. There have been rumors about him and his story and his ministry, and he doesn't think that they're right, that they've got the wrong story. So he wants to tell them the true story about him and his ministry and his gospel message. So some people have must have uh, suggested that maybe he watered down the gospel. As we read Galatians, we're not certain what they were actually saying about Paul. But what we do know is it seems like they were suggesting he watered down the message. It also seems like they're accusing him of being a people pleaser. Do you see that in our verse, verse 10 of chapter 1 of Galatians? Do you think I'm seeking to approve people? The approval of man or of God? If I were trying to please man, then, then I would have never even become a Christian, a servant, a slave of Christ. And so he addresses that head on, and he's trying to set the story straight that he is not a people pleaser. He is a God-fearer, not a man-fearer. And look at verses 8 and 9 again. Does he sound like somebody who's trying to please people? Verse 8, but if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So it's He's saying, curse you, damn you, you might as well just go to hell. Verse 9, as we said before, I'll say it again, if you didn't hear me the first time, I'm not a people pleaser, I'm going to tell you straight up, here's the truth, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. And then verse 10, do I sound like a people pleaser? Is that the rumors about me, that I'm just someone going around watering down the message? This doesn't sound like watering down, does it? And that's what he's trying to say here in these early chapters. Now drop down to verses 11 and 12, and I think we'll get another angle of why Paul's going to tell us the story, the story of his conversion, of his salvation. Look at verse 11. For it have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So one of the rumors that's going around, it appears at least, is that Paul made up his gospel, or he was taught his gospel, meaning the message that Paul goes and preaches 2,000 years ago in what would be now modern-day Turkey. If you look at a map today and you think of where Turkey is, that's where Galatia is, okay? And so he's in the middle of what would now, now be modern-day Turkey, and, and he's preaching messages about Jesus, and it, the rumors are that his messages were not only watered down, but, oh, he just got that from someone else. Maybe he was taught by some false teachers. And we're going to give you the real teaching later on. These people come in and say, well, let it, let, we're going to set Paul straight. And he's writing this letter back to these churches after he left them. And he said, no, I'm going to set the record straight. I didn't get this message that I preached to you from someone else other than Jesus, God himself. It came straight from God. 
And so I want to set the record straight that I got my gospel not from a human author, but from the living Lord. Think about it this way. It's like he's saying, the gospel is like water. None of you invented it. I didn't invent it. It didn't come from me. It didn't come from humans. Who here can take credit for inventing water? Well, nobody. But how many of you need water to live? How many of you desperately need the life-giving source, the the life-giving power and energy that water brings to make your life work? That's what the gospel's like. Paul's making that point here. I want to set the record straight. I didn't invent water. I didn't invent the the life-giving message of the gospel. God made it. God did it. He's the source. And it's only God who can make it, and it's only God who can create it, and we all need it. It's true life. Comes straight from God himself. So that's why he's going to tell his story. He's going to say, listen, this water that I gave you, this life-giving source of strength, of hope, of salvation, it's not contaminated. It's not polluted. It's the pure message of hope and salvation. And these other people, they're contaminating it. And I'm telling you, and getting it straight from the source himself, Jesus Christ. So who are you going to trust, he's saying in these verses? The one who gets it from the fountain of living water, Jesus? Or those that come after him and distort the message and get it all backwards? And this is why if you drop your eyes down to verse 16, he's going to have this long section after he tells his story explaining a little bit more about why he's giving us these instructions. Look at verse 16, and about halfway through the verse he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is the different name for Peter. So he went to visit Peter, and he remained with them for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. The only, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This whole section from verse 16 to 24 is making the same point of why Paul's telling us his story and getting the record straight about who he was. He's telling them, I did not go to anyone to confirm whether or not what Jesus told me was true. I didn't need Peter. I didn't need anybody from Jerusalem to say, oh yeah, that's the true message. Because we have the true message in Jerusalem, and so we can let you know. So think of it like like this. It's like Washington, D.C. is the center of all of our politics here in the United States. And so if it comes from Washington, it kind of speaks on behalf of everyone. Think of Jerusalem in that way in these early Christians. They're thinking, oh, well, if it came from Jerusalem, then it's legit. It's the real deal. Well, Paul didn't come from Jerusalem. That's what the whole story's about. Listen, I didn't even come from Jerusalem. I was on my way to the road. uh, I was on the road to Damascus. I was ready to go kill more Christians, as we're about to see. And so he didn't go to Jerusalem to say, well, I just got stopped in my tracks to Damascus to kill Christians. Should I go to Jerusalem now? I don't need to. I got the message from Jesus himself, and I know this is the right, true message. And then he says, and then guess what? Later, I did go to Jerusalem, and they all agreed that this was the right message, and they glorified God because this was the right message. 
And so that's why he's telling us his story. He's recounting to set the record straight, to say, I'm not a people pleaser. I'm not watering down the message. I'm giving you the pure living water that comes through the message of Jesus. And I got it from him, the very source. So trust me here. And that's what we should be doing. We should be trusting Paul that he got the story right, he got the message right, and that's question number one. Why is he telling us his story? So let's move on to question number two. What is Paul's story then? And I want us to just walk through it slowly, phrase by phrase, because I think each of these phrases has just transformational power for how God changes lives. So let's look at the first phrase. It's in verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. First thing I want you to notice as Paul tells his story is former life. Get that phrase stuck in your head. He says, I had a former life, meaning Paul so radically transformed by God on the road to Damascus that he no longer considers his current life same as his previous life. Like He has a whole different life. Remember verse 10? He says, I am a servant of Christ. He no longer considers himself part of Judaism in verse 15 and 14. I'm sorry, 13. In 13, he says, my former life in Judaism. He's not a part of Judaism anymore. He's a part of Christianity. His former life was revolved around Judaism, and he says, no, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm a Christian. And then look what he says at the end of verse 13. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. This is not hyperbole. This is not like he's trying to send some messages that are going to, you know, dismantle the arguments of Christianity and teach people. He literally, and I mean that literally, today we don't use that word literally. I just heard recently on the radio that they've redefined the word literally to just mean not literally. But I mean this literally, and Paul literally means he tried to destroy and kill Christians. Like, put them to death. That's what we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. He was on his way with letters to kill Christians. And that's what he was doing. Could you imagine anyone more opposed to Christianity? Do you see why he's telling his story now? And do you see how powerful this story is right from the get-go? He has a different life, a former life, because there's been a turning point. He used to be so opposed, as opposed as you could imagine, to Christianity. Some of you might think, well, I'm, I'm not super in favor of Christianity, or maybe in your previous life, for some of you that are now Christians, you might have been anti-Christianity, you might have been atheist. I don't think you were like Paul, were you? More on that later. Move down to verse 14. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. In other words, I was not just a part of Judaism. That wasn't just my former life, that was my life. I was committed, devoted. I was a rising star. If some of you have Catholic backgrounds, think he, he's, he's on the fast track to be the next pope. Like as, as big as it gets in Judaism, that's where he was headed. If you're a Protestant and you've been around churches, maybe think of it like he's the celebrity preacher. He's the Bible scholar that everybody respects, the best-selling author, conference speaker. He is, amongst his peers in Judaism, the best of the best. And I think this is important as we understand Paul's story because a lot of our stories, if, if we're honest, we meet God in a time of depression, in a time of hurt or brokenness or pain or when the bottom of our life just falls out. It's like, I've got nothing, God. And then all of a sudden, he becomes our everything. That is so often our story, but that's not Paul's story. 
And that means the gospel is for any of us here today. Even if your life is completely fallen apart, the gospel's for you. It brings hope to people like that. But the gospel's also for some of you who think, my life's good. In fact, I'm on the fast track. Things are going well at work, my family, everything. Like, things are, are good. But has God come in and intervene in such a way where you would look back and say, even though you thought your life was good, like Paul, he thought things were good. He now says, no, I was so mistaken. I had everything mixed up and backwards. I think this is so important for us to understand that in the middle of Paul's success, he hears one amazing word, Saul, from the very mouth of Jesus. In other words, take Paul's own words, verse 15. This is the one word, but. This is the key word for our message today. If you're getting anything out of today's message, it's this one word, but. Remember this word for the rest of your life. Every single person who has met God has a but. I was living a certain way. I was heading a certain direction, but. See Paul's story? Are any of you starting to see yourself in this? But. My life was going this way, but God intervened. God stepped in. God revealed himself to me, or as Paul says it, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, but God, but God set me apart from before I was born. This is fantastic. This is almost unbelievable. Paul was killing Christians, but God was in control. God had a plan for Paul's life. Humanly speaking, it would look to us as impossible for Paul to become Christian and so be changed and transformed the way he was. Think of the worst person in the world. Think of a terrorist. That's in fact what Paul was. A terrorist. Somebody killing off an entire segment of the population because they disagree with their beliefs, they think their beliefs are better, and they sincerely believe they're doing it on behalf of God. Does that not sound like the world we live in today? That was what Paul was. A terrorist. Thinking he was doing justice for God and killing people. We look at those people and think they are the most distorted people you could imagine. But... God set this man apart. God was not caught off guard when Paul started killing these Christians. He is the sovereign ruler over all the universe. Even when things seem seemingly impossible in the eyes of us here on earth, God does the impossible because he knows the beginning to the end. He has a plan, and even though we may not know all the reasons for why things were in his plan, what we do know is little glimpses here or there about why he let certain things happen. So listen to this. This is Paul in another letter to his little friend Timothy, a younger guy that he's discipled and taught and mentored. And this is what he tells Timothy in Timothy chapter 1. I thank Jesus Christ, my Lord. He gave me strength, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent person. You see where he's going here. He's telling his story again here in Timothy. He gave me strength. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent person. But I received mercy. Do you hear it again? But I received mercy 
This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I am the worst of all sinners. And it is for this reason that in me, the foremost, the greatest sinner, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. Did you hear Paul's story in 1 Timothy 1? It's an example for you and for me. I know a lot of us in here have done some bad things in our lives that we're ashamed of, that we feel guilty of, that when we look back at our lives, we feel a lot of regret. My guess is none of you are a terrorist, though, or have been a terrorist. Most of you in this room I have personally met, and so I can say with confidence, at least 95% of you have never been a terrorist. So you should know that God comes down, intervenes, but God, even in terrorists' lives. And in this case, he does that so that you would know that when Paul was killing Christians, God was being patient. So that you would know the greatness of God's patience and the radical transformation of his power. The one true God of the Bible is more merciful and more patient than you could ever dream of. That's why Paul has his story being told. But when God set me apart from before I was born, and then look at the next phrase in Galatians 1, and he called me by his grace. This word call means to call. Like kaleo is the Greek word. I'm sure most of you don't care, but it just means to call someone. So some of you who are parents, you've experienced this quite often. Children, it's time for dinner. I'm calling you to dinner. Please come. Now, when you tell that to your children, all of your Christian parents in this room, a lot of you at least, and they just come right away, right? None of them are sinners. They just listen. Oh, yes, mom and dad. Maybe a little moment of transparency. Last night, we were having dinner together as a family. We were all home. Christine makes a, a wonderful meal for us all. And she calls the family to the dinner table. And then she calls the family to the dinner table again. And then again. Yes, even in our home, sometimes our children, uh, isn't that crazy? Even the pastor's kids. Now, they're wonderful children, but all of us know this experience, that sometimes our call doesn't actually affect the thing that we're hoping to do. Sometimes we call people on the phone and they just don't answer. It's just, I, I called, but you never picked up. That's not the way this word is being used in the Bible. So even though it means just to call someone, theologically, throughout the Bible, it means to do something when God's the one calling you. So it's not just call, it's the word is the deed. The calling is the action. And so when he says God called me, it means God came in and he did the thing that I needed, which was a total 180 reversal. Paul's story is one of calling one of immediate response because God was the one who was calling. Did God stand before all of the empty universe and say, let there be light? Okay, come on. Let there be light. Do I have to say it again? Now, come on, light, be light. No, he said, let there be light. And what does the scripture say in Genesis 1? There was light. This is the story from the first page of the Bible to all of the rest of eternity. When God speaks, he does. When he calls, it happens. 
So he says to a valley of dry bones, dry bones, rise up. And these bones start coming up and becoming live human beings. That's Ezekiel 37. It's a prophetic image of God's power, of how he speaks, a metaphor of this very point. He tells the stars, exist, and they start to exist out of the overflow of his mouth that the stars of the universe were created in Psalm 33. Jesus comes down to the earth as the God-man, and he tells the storms, be still. And they listen right away. The dream of every mom in this room. Peace, be still, and the waters cease. They didn't start arguing back, oh, I'll be right there, Jesus. Let's keep doing a little more chaos in the sea. When he told Lazarus, Lazarus, after he was lying dead in a tomb for four days, he didn't say, Lazarus, come forth. And then a voice shouted back from the tomb, I'll be right there. Let me take a shower. Take off these grave clothes. No, he comes out grave clothes and all. And the old King James says, and Lazarus came out and he stinketh. When Paul is on the Damascus road and Jesus calls to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul falls to the ground. He becomes blind for three days and he does exactly what the Lord told him to do. When God calls, he does. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, it's because you have heard God's voice and he has said, come to me. And you came. And you might feel, humanly speaking, that you did the coming, and in fact, you did. But there's two ways to look at our salvation. There's the earthly perspective, and then there's the heavenly perspective. I'm giving you the heavenly perspective. When God calls, you come, and you're coming on your own. You're making a decision, but you're doing that because he called, he spoke, and you're doing it because it's his will. This is what Paul means when he says, I was called by God's grace. It is a gracious call. It is an undeserving call. What did Paul deserve as he is heading on the road to kill more Christians? He deserved lightning down from heaven. That's what he deserved. He deserved judgment, dropped down dead. Why didn't he get the Ananias and Sapphira treatment earlier in Acts chapter 5? They weren't killing Christians, but yet they dropped down dead. This was a call of grace. A gracious call that accomplishes his purpose. Verse 16, let's follow along in his story. I was born, set apart before I was born. He called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Each of these words popping with transforming truth. Pleased to reveal his son to me. He was pleased. To reveal his son. And it could be translated in me. And just in case we're like, what? He was pleased to reveal his son to me. That makes sense, logically. But for some of you, in me. He was revealing the son of God in Paul. Well, read over. Just turn your eyes to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is why many translators think he's saying in me. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So it very well could be the way you translate this verse. He's saying, Christ came in me or to me. I don't think it makes a big difference. But we do know that he was pleased. God was pleased to reveal the Son of God 
to Paul. It brought him pleasure. He was not in heaven thinking, oh man, I don't like that guy. Do, do, I, really, do I really have to send the Son of God to Paul, this terrorist guy? All right, if I have to. This is not what we get from this verse. It says he, he takes great pleasure in revealing the Son to him. Have you ever thought about this before? Have you ever thought about what God's heart is like when he is doing things in the world? And what gives him great pleasure? My guess is you're only thinking about your pleasure so often that you very, you, you never think about, well, what does God take pleasure in? This is why we read the Bible, because we want to get into God's mind and God's heart. And when you do, you're going to see something amazing, breathtaking, and beautiful. God takes pleasure in revealing himself to other people and transforming them. I will admit, I had not thought about that question in a lot of my Christian life. What does God take pleasure in? What pleases God? And then in college, I read this book, The Pleasures of God. Now, as you look at it, you'll be like, that's kind of thick. It took me two times to read this because I was not a reader back then. Like, literally, didn't read a single book. Then I read this book. This was one of my first books outside of the Bible that I read. And this transformed my understanding of God in a way that I am forever grateful for John Piper. John Piper has written about 40, 50 books. I still think this is his best book. And he has written a lot of very good ones. And so if you do want to take this up, know that I'm giving you a forewarning. It is dense. But it is amazing. Each chapter is filled with biblical truths about what God takes pleasure in. And I just had never even considered to think, well, yeah, what does God take pleasure in? And when I did, and I read the book, and I started meditating on what God was like, I learned depths about God that I had never even dreamed of and thought to consider. I recommend not just the book, but the truth behind it. God takes pleasure in revealing himself to you and to me. He is not begrudgingly up in heaven trying to, okay. He loves to. He wants to give of himself. God is, in his essence, a giver. Jesus says it is more blessed and happy and pleasurable to give than receive. You know why Jesus knew that? Because he, as the person, human flesh, that represents all that God is, knows that God, in his essence, is a giver of himself. And he takes pleasure in giving and revealing and serving and loving. That is a good God. And we should give praise and worship to a God like this. He takes pleasure in revealing himself through his creation and the beauty of the world that he made. He takes pleasure in revealing himself through the Son, Jesus Christ. He takes pleasure in giving you the Holy Spirit and causing you to do good works to the glory of his great name. And we could go on. But let's look at what this verse says in verse 16 again. He takes great pleasure in revealing Jesus to Paul in order that he might preach him among the Gentiles, in order that. That's the other phrase. We've heard former life. We've heard but. Now you need to hear, in order that. Salvation is not an end of itself. Just knowing Jesus and having an experience and having the knowledge of God all by itself, that's not the end goal. It's so that. I did this so that Paul would be a different person for the glory of my name among all the Gentiles. Now, if you're here today and you're not used to hearing the word Gentile, it just means non-Jewish. So there's Jewish people, and then there's non-Jewish people. 
And the world in a Jewish person's mind is kind of summed up in that way. It'd be like me saying, okay, there's Christians and there's non-Christians. And we have a title for these non-Christian people. It's Gentiles. That's the way they talked in the first century. So these Gentiles are anybody that's not a Jew. Now think about this for just a second. You have here in front of you a story about a man who is the rising star of Judaism. He knows the Torah probably memorized frontwards and backwards, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All those first five books of the Bible, he knows them like the front and back of his hand. This guy is making something of himself in Judaism. So God comes, and he saves him. He rescues him through Jesus, and he says, so now I want you to tell this truth to the Jews. Isn't that what you would expect? You'd expect the expert of Judaism, the rising shooting star of that people, to be the one that's going to help those people see the light of the Messiah. That's what I'd expect. And I want to hit this point because I think it's one of the heart pieces of this chapter in Galatians. This gospel did not come from Paul. This mission did not come from Paul. This was all of God from the start to the finish. The mission was God's mission. The gospel was God's mission. And the saving of Paul was God's doing. God, God, God. The gospel is divine, your sermon title says in the bulletin. It's divine. It's from God. It's through God. It's only God. And so this is not something that you and I would come up with. We would make plans, and we make dumb plans, humanly speaking. We make bad plans. We want to create religions as humans. We make them all the same kind of religion. Do a bunch of good things, pray enough times, visit a certain places, do this or that, and then you, you will experience the blessing from God. All world religions are equally the same in that sense. Do these things. Salvation, blessing, that's what we make up. But God, he does something so radically different. His message is radically different. His mission is different. And so when we see Paul, very ironically being the the budding star of Judaism, getting sent to the Gentiles, you should realize that this is divine. This is of God and so he tells them the story so that they would know that, I, that, that this Paul, his message is authentic, his mission is authentic, it is from God, it is by grace. And so we took a terrorist who became an evangelist through the power of God's grace. That's his story. So what about you? What about your story? I said I want us to answer the big why question. Why is he telling us this story? He's setting the record straight He's letting the Galatians know, you can listen to me. I am an authentic apostle. I saw Jesus myself. My message, my mission, all of it is from God. And so then we heard his story. And we heard about his transformation and his calling and his former life. And the but, God in his mercy. But what about you? First question. I want to give you three questions to close. Question one. Do you have a former life. Do you have a former life? Have your beliefs and views about God ever been changed? Or have they just been a little tweaked? You know, a little tweaking. That's not Christianity. You're not understanding the message of Christianity. If it's just, oh yeah, I came to a church a few times and I got tweaked a little bit. That's not what Paul said. 
I'm heading one direction, and then I got radically transformed from Judaism to Christianity. How many of us have been people pleasers? Maybe that's part of our former life. You see that in verse 10 of chapter 1? Paul says, I'm not a people pleaser anymore. I am a God pleaser. What if we just take that one example? How many of you live for the approval and acceptance of other people? How many of you who are Christians today would say, yeah, that pretty much typifies my former life. To please my mom and dad, please my teachers, to impress my coworkers, my boss, consumed with people pleasing. One of the other helpful books I've read and I have two free copies for anyone who after the service says that one looks shorter and more accessible, and it is, is when people are big and God is small, the issue of fear of man and how that can be debilitating. And for many of you, my guess is you're not even realizing how much your life is consumed by people-pleasing. The clothes you wear, the way you get ready every single day and won't walk out the door until a certain criteria is met because the fear of people, the lack of hospitality to come and open up your home because the fear of what people think, the, the fear to open up your lives and share what's really going on so you can actually get help and encouragement from other brothers or sisters in this room or even in your life in general. You're just holding it all in because you fear other people. Do you, do you see what I'm saying here? And I could go on. This can be so pervasive like a disease. And ultimately at the root of it is that you fear what people think. And the antidote to that is a radical difference. A former life has now been done away with and a new life has been born where you say, no, I now fear God. My purpose, my mission, my focus is on pleasing the one true God. And if he is pleased with me, and we know he is, because we read John Piper's book, The Pleasures of God, he's pleased with us. And we've read the Bible where that book comes from. So that's my first question. Can you today say that there have been areas like the fear of man versus the fear of God or other areas where you say, that's so radically different in the way I think about it, in the way I approach life, and it trickles down into the very core of who I am, that I have a former life. And you can look back that way. Second question. Do you have a but God moment? Do you see God as the one who made the transition of your former life to your current life? Or is that transition something you think you have done? But I turned my life around. But I got my act together. But I cleaned myself up. That's a very different message, isn't it? Christianity is, but God did something to you through his gospel. Do you have that story? Former life, living a certain way, and then God he graciously called me. He came to me. All through the Bible, we have different explanations of this. And it's not just Paul who has but God moments. Listen to Titus chapter 3. This is speaking to a whole bunch of Christians. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the former life, isn't it? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions and pleasures. Verse 4, Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. 
not because of the great works done by us in our righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did you hear anything about, well, we were foolish, but we became wiser because we read some books, we studied, but he, God, appeared through Jesus and saved us, and it was not by works that we did. Could that be more clear? This is the teaching of Christianity. Former lives are former lives because God intervenes. Have, Have you had that experience? For some of us, it's in an instant, it's in a moment, it's in a sermon, it's in one conversation with somebody, it's in a book we read, and then we remember, but God came in at that moment. For others of us, our God moment like that is over months, weeks, years. Maybe you're in the middle of it right now, maybe it's starting in this very moment. Without it, you're still in your former life, a life of darkness, of death, of destruction. Slaves to passions, foolishness, hatred. Last question. What is your mission? Do you believe that God has saved you just to save? Do you believe that God just sent Jesus to send Jesus? Or do you believe that God has uniquely made each and every one of you in such a way that he would use you in a specific manner the way he used Paul? Do you think that when God called Paul and said, so that you would then be used by me for the sake of all the Gentiles, well, that was Paul. Now, there is a difference. None of you in this room should write scripture. None of you, as far as I'm aware of, have seen Jesus in human form here on this earth like Paul did. That's what Paul's telling us in his story and in the story we read in Acts chapter 9. None of you should say, I'm capital A, Apostle. That I am authoritatively sent to tell you what God said on my own words. That's what Paul's like. So there's a difference. But there's also a similarity. Throughout the Bible, it says that every single Christian has been chosen by God and chosen so that. In order that. Let me give you an example. 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you hear that? Chosen race. God has chosen you. All of Christianity is a race, a, a priesthood, a nation of people that is God's very own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So that... All of you were given grace so that you could share that grace. You've been given experiences so you can share those experiences. So that you can make much of Jesus Christ to the glory of his great name. Who is the God that is calling you, who has called you? What gifts Has he called you too to bring him glory? Some of us here, we think, well, I'm the least likely person to do that ministry. Was Paul any more least likely kind of people to do the ministry that God called him to? Don't believe the lie that God will not or cannot use your gifts. 
Hopefully, one day, you will be able to say as Paul did. Look down at Galatians 1, verse 24. And they glorified God because of me. Is that your mission? Is that your purpose? Is that your focus? The longing of your heart. Has it been transformed that instead of thinking, and they glorified me, that's the former life. When God steps in, you have a new mission and a new purpose. Your purpose is that they would say, and they glorified God because of me. God gets all the glory because God did it all. The gospel is divine, is it not? So one more time. Do you have a former life? Do you have a but God did this? He intervened. He stepped in. Do you have that moment? And if you're here today, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, wherever you're at, do you understand that God has come to call all of us in this room right now so that we would glorify him? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you great thanks now for sending Jesus Christ into the earth to save sinners. Paul says he's the foremost, but many of us in this room feel like we're the worst sinner we know. And so, God, we come and we confess our sin. We confess that we are needy, we're thirsty, and we need your living water. And so we give you thanks and we give you praise that you did not just give us a little drop. You gave us an ever-flowing fountain of your grace. And we have the source right here today available to us because Christ has risen, Christ has ascended, and Christ is at the right hand of the Father. We thank you for Christ that we can drink of the living water and we will never thirst again. And we will know our mission, we will know our purpose, we will know our calling and why you've given us the experiences and gifts and the unique traits that we have. So God, would you so fill us with your Holy Spirit and be the people that fulfill this calling to the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.